With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Jill Winebanks, and me, Barb McQuaid. Joyce is away this week, but we'll look forward to having her back next week. We wanted to start by giving a big thank you to everyone who came out to see us live on stage in Portland, New York, and Washington, D.C. We had so much fun, and we really appreciate your support in all of those cities. Today, we'll be discussing the latest in the Mar-a-Lago investigation, the Supreme Court's decision against EPA wetlands protections, and the trend to make shoplifting a felony. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we get started, I really just want to talk a little bit about the live shows that we did in Portland, New York, and D.C. They were so much fun. I mean, could you guys ever have imagined that they would be such a blast? I really couldn't. I mean, I would have never imagined going on tour and having audience members come and be so enthusiastic to see the show live. You know, we always record every episode in our four little corners of the country um, on our own. And so one, it was just so amazing for the four of us to be together. That was so amazing. But then the energy that our listeners brought when they came live and told us their stories, everything from how it's taught them how to think about the news differently to some of them even being inspired to go to law school. It was really overwhelming and amazing. I agree with everything that Kim said. It was a remarkable experience to meet people in person, to hear their stories, to hear how we had inspired them, but mostly the adrenaline rush that we got. I mean, walking out on stage and hearing the audience roar was something you just can't ever imagine in your life. But also the dynamic between the four of us, I just, I loved. And getting to know everybody even better, being together for prolonged periods of time, meeting in a hotel lobby at 7.30 in the morning and taking a train. And it was, it was fantastic. And then I have to add I loved our pastrami in New York. I also really loved, I, I, I mean, people in Chicago are going to hate me, but I really did like the D.C. half smoke with chili. And I am looking forward to a Detroit Coney dog. And uh, then I'm also looking forward to your sharing my love of Vienna hot dogs in Chicago. But I got to say, Kim, you did really good with the hot dogs. Yes, those hot dogs Kim provided from uh, Ben's Chili Bowl. What were they called? Half Smokes? That yes, was awfully with chili. Good. Yeah. The, the gauntlet has been thrown down for the best, uh, the best hot dog. We'll see if we can compete in uh, Detroit and Chicago. Um, I loved it too. You know, one of my favorite parts of the trip was our train ride between New York and DC. That was really fun. We spent the whole time just talking on the train for three hours, whatever it was. We, we really had a great time um, during that ride. But I just loved meeting people um, in all three cities who are so deeply engaged in the issues of the day. It was really gratifying to see that there's so many people in America who care about democracy and the rule of law 
Um, and I think, you know, the reason they came out, the reason they're interested in listening is they just want to learn more uh, so that they can have informed opinions about the issues of the day. You know, these are people recognize things are not normal right now <laughs> and want to learn a little more about it uh, to help them um, process what's going on. So I loved meeting they, all those they people. They were really knowledgeable people. I was mm-hmm. impressed by the... Mm-hmm content of their questions. Yep. These weren't just casual questions. These were people who read deeply and really understand what's going on in our country. That's very encouraging for our democracy. You know, in journalism, we sometimes talk about the five W's, right? The who, what, where, when, and why. I know it's kind of an old-timey way of thinking about getting to the bottom of something. And even in journalism, we don't really talk about that anymore. But in the case of the classified documents, it actually works really well. Of course, the who is the former president, Donald Trump. The where is Mar-a-Lago. But let's answer some of the other questions. Barb, let's start with the when, because some of the new information we've learned uh, involves the timeline of events when it comes to these classified documents and what happened to them at Mar-a-Lago. What do these things, this timeline, this new timeline signal to you about the investigation? Yeah. So one thing that we have learned is that um, on the day before the FBI and DOJ came to Mar-a-Lago to look at these boxes, June 3rd of last year, the boxes were moved. And that timing sounds extremely suspicious that perhaps boxes were moved knowing that DOJ officials were coming in an effort to conceal something or uh, to in some way interfere with their investigation. And if so, that's a really significant fact because one of the factors that prosecutors look for in deciding whether to file charges in cases involving the mishandling of classified documents is the presence of some sort of aggravating factor. And one of those aggravating factors can be obstruction of justice. It's also one of the things that would distinguish this case from the cases of Joe Biden and Mike Pence, who say they inadvertently retained classified documents and immediately uh, called their own foul and returned the documents. Um, If Trump is playing games and trying to hide them from investigators, that really ups the ante here and I think takes it from a perhaps explainable offense, though I don't think so, uh, to one that is of a very different character, that is obstruction of justice. And so for that reason, I think it is likely, more likely that we would see charges. The other thing that this does is if you frame it as obstruction of justice, then some of the defenses that Trump himself have raised really go away. Like this idea that he thought the documents belonged to him. It doesn't matter if you're lying to the Justice Department about the documents, then that's a separate crime regardless of your you know, belief about whether these things belong to you. Or this idea that he can, through his own mind, without communicating it to anyone, declassify the documents, again, becomes irrelevant if the case is about obstruction of justice instead of about retention of classified documents. Yeah. And, you know, Joe, we learn more about the what, too, when it comes to this case and what Trump is alleged to have done. It's like history repeating, right? You know that better than anyone. (laughs) Talk about the alleged crime and the alleged cover-up. So you're right. And Barb mentioned in part what it is because it's obstruction of justice. And oftentimes the cover-up is worse than the crime. 
Although in this case, I think we shouldn't forget how serious this crime is and the danger that having classified documents in unsafe places raises to our country. But in terms of the, the, the what, you have Trump keeping documents in visible places, showing them to people according to what we're learning now. He also had a dress rehearsal. He told aides he wanted to make sure that he could keep papers that he said, they're my property, which, and I want to pause here for a second because we keep talking about the classified documents, but honestly, all of the documents are government property. The classified documents present a risk to our country and to our security, but all of them, ever since Watergate, have belonged to us, the people. They're for history. They are not for personal gain. If a president wants to see them after leaving the presidency, he has to use them by request and only under limited circumstances. He doesn't just get to keep them. That isn't how it works. Um, the other thing is you have a lot of witnesses now who have been talked to about moving documents knowingly or not knowing what was in them. And their lawyers are being paid by the Trump PAC. That's another suspicious circumstance that makes it look like a cover-up because there's a conflict of interest. No lawyer should be representing someone who is testifying in a way possibly against the person who's paying them. That's just blatant obstruction of justice. That's all of this goes back to the Watergate era when there was hush money paid to keep witnesses from talking. It was directly paid to them, but it also covered their lawyers' fees. And that was one of the big crimes of Watergate. So this is a very serious development. This new evidence may explain why there's been another slight delay, hopefully only slight, in bringing some kind of indictment in this case, which I think from all evidence, might be coming soon. So let's talk about the when, Barb, another when, which involves when uh, special counsel Jack Smith may do something. And to me, it seems like some of the things that we're learning is a little contradictory. On the one hand, you have some news organizations saying that he is wrapping up this investigation soon. It seems like charges could be imminent. On the other hand, you have another report from the Washington Post that said that Smith sought, sought documents from the Trump organization that go back to 2017. And we also know that the grand jury hasn't met since sometime at the beginning of May. Um, so what does that tell us? What sort of read these tea leaves for us? Yeah, you know, one thing I'll say is that you can never really predict exactly when an investigation is going to be over. Even prosecutors themselves often don't know because sometimes they, they think they have one more witness to talk to and that witness tells them about five more people they need to talk to. So um, I, I don't know that we know, but there are some interesting indicators. One is the Wall Street Journal reported that the investigation is wrapping up. And so that could uh, be accurate. Maybe some someone on the inside has shared that with them. I also think one of the things that struck me this week to suggest that the investigation is probably nearing completion is this letter that Trump's lawyers sent to Merrick Garland. Um, you know, this one was clearly intended for the public. It was posted on Truth Social. And it said, you know, we're being treated so unfairly, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and asking for a meeting with, with Merrick Garland. Um, that strikes me as something that comes at the end of an investigation. You know, I, 
I doubt that uh, Merrick Garland is going to take that meeting just because Jack Smith is the special counsel who is overseeing this case. And if they want a meeting, it should be with Jack Smith. But I imagine that this is sort of a preemptive strike so that if and when Merrick Garland says, no, I'm not going to meet with you, uh, you know, they can howl and say, we were treated so unfairly. We asked to for an audience and he refused to give it, you know, it's because they asked the wrong, the wrong person. So that suggests to me that they may know something that charges are imminent. Um, But as you mentioned, on the other hand, there is this reporting that as recently as April, a grand jury subpoena was served to get documents from the Trump organization relating to business dealings with foreign governments. And that is very interesting only because that could provide an additional motive for Donald Trump to retain some of these classified documents. I mean, no one's made this link yet. There's no allegation of it. But, uh, you know, one one possibility is that he was selling secrets to foreign governments or that he wanted to keep documents to use as leverage over foreign governments or to obtain some advantage. Uh, one of them is Saudi Arabia, with whom he's got a big uh, deal for promoting um, the golf tour. So, uh it's a really interesting development. And if they do find some there there, that could extend the investigation uh, by, you know, weeks or months. Yeah. And I want to, that that's a very good segue into the why part of the five W's. And Jill touched on it a little bit. And I want to go back and, and ask you more about why this is so important, Jill. But I think I think sometimes when we're talking about this classified documents case in general, it sort of seems like the, you know, the least serious of all the investigations that are going on. But it's really important um, that this investigation go on. And and it's really important why we have the rules governing them. I mean, we don't know all the documents that were in Donald Trump's possession at Mar-a-Lago. We don't know why he wanted them. We do know that the Trump family has benefited from very lucrative deals with Saudi Arabia, (laughs) among others. Um, Since leaving the White House, things that were probably cultivated through their, not probably, very certainly cultivated through their relationships during the Trump administration. That's just one of many things um, that seems fishy here to me. So, Jill, sort of get into the why why these laws exist that govern the use of classified documents and why they're not supposed to be taken out of secure places and why this investigation matters. It's really important to understand that. And I think people have been diminishing the importance of this case and of the New York uh, Alvin Bragg case. These laws exist for a very good reason. And that is that Documents are classified by the people who create them and by the people who oversee them into various categories. And some of them are basically a guarantee that the leakage of them would harm America. It will either reveal the uh, names of people who are involved in collecting foreign intelligence or the methods that we're using that would be shut down if the foreign country knew about those methods. And so it's really important that these kinds of pieces of information be kept secret. And that means they can't be just left in a desk drawer or even in a storage room in a public place. And basically, Mar-a-Lago is a public place. It's a private club with hundreds of members and guests who come in all the time. And so anybody 
would have access to it. Yes, theoretically, no one did. But theoretically, someone did. And now there's reporting that Donald Trump left some of these documents in the open on his desk. That's dangerous. And so we have to be aware of what could happen, the reasons for protecting our security. And and I also want to go back to, um, because I've been thinking about this since Barbara was talking about the letter. I'm personally completely outraged by the letter. It is not uncommon when I was a justice, we would meet with defense lawyers who would come in to say, here are facts that you may not be aware of. This is why you shouldn't indict my defendant. My client is innocent. And of course, that's a a valid thing to come in and Anybody would want to have that before making a final prosecution decision to make sure that there isn't something you should know about. You don't want to indict someone who is not guilty. But this letter is such a blatant public relations stunt aimed at only one thing, and that is the Trump cult, because it says that the investigation is baseless, which no lawyer could say with passing what I call the red face test because the evidence is overwhelming that there is something going on here. And so it just makes them look silly to have written those words. And it demeans, I think, our whole justice system to make this kind of accusation. And it's just going to lead to more of the, it's a fake election, the election was stolen, this case is unfair. It isn't unfair, it's based on very good evidence, and I I just, I'm outraged by it. So just wanted to add that. Sorry. Jill, the other point about that letter, uh, and I I share your view. We used to meet with defense attorneys all the time. If there's information that would be valuable to our decision, by all means, we want to know as much information as we can. But this is a... you know, what we would call an invitation. They, they, they don't want a meeting. They just want a propaganda with the community. Exactly. Right? And, exactly. And so here, here's the other tell. It talks about Joe and Hunter Biden. Uh, and <laughs> you know, it's, it's like it was written by, by Trump himself, right? The most unfair investigation in the history of the world in contrast to Joe and Hunter Biden. So it's, uh, it is not a genuine It's outrageous. It's just it's outrageous. Not a genuine request. But get, getting back to Kim's point, um, just one thing to add about the um, classified information. So um, top secret information is defined as um, information, the disclosure of which would cause exceptionally grave damage to the national security of the United States. Some of Trump's supporters have uh, compared this crime to being akin to an overdue library book. Um, And that is not true unless the library book were radioactive. You know, this is information (laughs) itself is is a hot potato. And that's why you have to take great care in how you treat it. Um, And Jill, you were talking about Mar-a-Lago. We know that Mar-a-Lago has been a target of espionage. There have been people who have been arrested for, you know, bringing in thumb drives and trying to target computers at Mar-a-Lago. It is a soft target for... Uh, people who want to collect information yeah. on the United States. And if you know Trump's there throwing around classified documents, oh my gosh, what a what a target that is. Um, and so it's a serious crime. And, and Kim, you're right to ask about it because I think it gets lost in the shuffle as sort of a bookkeeping error, a technical violation or something like that. It's a serious crime and that's why it is consistently prosecuted. And I hope your book is going to include the SPARB. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, this... Uh, uh, disinformation um, trick. One of the things that um, I, I think is 
is the game here is the idea that um, everybody is corrupt. Uh, you know, this is this is part of the the attack on truth. Is sure I'm corrupt, so, but so is Joe Biden, and so is Hunter Biden. And if we're all corrupt, then you should just pick the the leader that um, best aligns with your values, because truth doesn't matter. And I think that's part of uh, you know the campaign in this letter. Justice demands that we take action on this case. So Merrick Garland, make sure that Jack Smith does something soon. Well, this week, the Supreme Court issued its ruling in a case called Sackett versus EPA. A couple in Idaho had challenged the EPA's refusal to allow them to build a home on wetlands in violation of the Clean Water Act. And they brought a lawsuit. It's been working its way through the courts. Uh, and Jill, this week, the court was unanimous in ruling that the couple's property was not covered by the law and should win their case. But the conservative majority went further than just that decision by narrowing the coverage of what can be protected as a wetland. I think we referred to this in a prior episode, wetlands of the United States or waters of the United States as the WOTUS. Um, <laughs> is, this, is this the way courts normally decide cases, this, this broad view? Well, there's nothing normal about our Supreme Court these days. So I would say this wasn't the way that courts decided things in normal times, but these aren't normal times. The court really went out of its way in narrowing the limits of what the EPA could do. They were exceptionally harsh in doing this and could create huge damage to the environment and the climate um, because of the role of wetlands in protecting against flooding, for example, and pollution. So it's really a bad decision, and that's what led to having concurring opinions that say, we agree with the outcome, the decision that this particular couple's home is not covered by the wetlands because it isn't the right definition of wetlands, but we don't agree that you should go further and redefine the test that has stood the test of time and has been in existence for over 40 years. Um, and the EPA was created for a very specific reason by, I will say, good things about President Nixon. He was the one who invented the EPA because of a crisis in our climate and our environment. So it's very important to keep in mind that although it was a unanimous ruling, it was not agreed to um, by a significant number, including Justice Kavanaugh and the three liberal justices, as to how the test should be going forward. Yeah. So, um, Kim, let me ask you about uh, one of the concurring opinions. Justice Kagan tied this decision, which was a Clean Water Act case, to a ruling last year on air pollution under the Clean Air Act. What do you see as the larger trend here in environmental cases? Yeah, I mean, Justice Kagan essentially um, cut and pasted her objection in this <laughs> case from her objection in the last case, which essentially boils down to this. She accused the majority of, uh, quote, putting the thumb on the scale basically against the EPA and in favor of any 
private landowner or business who oppose what the EPA is doing, which of course, think about it, businesses <laughs> and private owners will often oppose what the EPA is doing because what the EPA is doing is looking at the greater good, looking at the the their role in protecting the earth, protecting the environment. And a lot of things that both individuals and particularly businesses do um, are not sustainable, are not in the best interest of the climate. And that's why it's there. And they're going to oppose them. And this Supreme Court is increasingly both because it's a very pro-business court and also, um, you know, because they really don't like an overly broad executive branch, which these agencies are a part of, have been consistently chipping away at that. And what just Justice Kagan uh, finds very um, uh, wrong is the fact that anytime Congress does not specifically say, hey, we are authorizing you to set specific rules with respect to wetlands and what constitutes a wetland and what property can be built on, can Congress do that? Of course not. Congress cannot govern with that level of granularity. That's why we have agencies that are filled with experts. We've talked about this before with respect to, say, the FDA and mifepristone. It is up to the agencies to make these kinds of really detailed decisions about the safety and what should be happening in uh, safety with respect to waterways, just like safety with respect to drugs. Congress cannot set rules with that level of granularity because they're not scientists, they're not experts. But anytime Congress doesn't set a rule with that level of granularity, the Supreme Court comes in and says, well, that's not specific enough and you weren't authorized agency to set these kinds of rules. And Kagan has essentially had enough, even in a case like this where they ruled ultimately that in the specific case, the the building that this couple wanted to do on their land in Idaho would have been okay. And I'm going to also say, just so that people aren't confused, this could be, sometimes the Supreme Court tries to build a consensus. This was a 5-4 decision. It's possible that Kagan and the other liberals weren't sure initially that the the wetlands provisions didn't apply to this couple, but they moved enough in order to try to get, and they got Kavanaugh to join them. Maybe they thought they could get a fifth person. Maybe they thought they could get Barrett or someone and say, look, if we say that these, this couple, <laughs> this is all speculation, but if mm-hmm. we say that the regulations would have allowed this couple. Would you would you keep us from going that step farther and really kneecapping the EPA? And they may have tried to to build a consensus opinion and in doing so gave the opinion that in this case that what the Sackets were doing didn't run afoul of the regulation. That's always a possibility here. Um, so I, I leave that open. But that just shows how far the Supreme Court, at least some of them, um, like Kagan and the other liberals, are trying to to save statutes like um, the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act from extinction from the rulings of this court. Yeah, this case reminds me of the Lorax, right? Like, oh, we're, we're going <laughs> to cut down all the truffula trees so that we can make more truffula factories and all that. And at the end of the day, what's left, you know, it's all, yes. it's all gone. It's all d- depleted. It's oh, all used up. Oh, that is up. great. Thank you for, yeah. you know, taking me from my administrative law uh, rabbit hole <laughs> and, and using Dr. <laughs> Seuss to bring me back yeah. to reality. Barb, thank you. Yeah. So, you know, this couple gets their house. Yay them. You know, they get to cut down the truffula tree. But what does that do to the wetlands across the country? Right. Well, Jill, Kim raises an interesting point about the 
you know, the battle against the so-called administrative state. Uh, it isn't just the EPA that the Supreme Court seems to be going after. It's all of these federal agencies. Um, and what do you see as the danger when the court is striking down all these regulatory rules that are decided by federal agencies, the, the experts, as Kim says? So I think Kim made a very strong start at answering that question. It is a danger to how we run our government. There is no way that any Congress could ever do the kind of work that the agencies do. They don't have time. They don't have staff. You would have nothing left in Congress if that's all they could do was to implement regulations. Um, and I'm going to raise a slightly different issue, which is here, the regulation was crystal clear. And I, I don't want to get into the definition of adjacent and adjoining and the, the technicalities of it, but it's very clear that the waters that are included in the EPA's jurisdiction include waters well beyond what the Supreme Court has now said is included. They have limited it to contiguous and continuous flowing waters to the uh, waters of the United States. That's simply wrong. It hasn't been the rule for many, many, many years. And this is part of what I think is one of the most serious things that the GOP has taken on, which is to eliminate the entire regulatory administration of our government. And that, as, as Kim said, that goes to the FDA and the ruling on Mifeprestone, but it would include every single other agency would be unable to pass regulations and enforce them if this ruling stands and if the court can substitute itself, which is what it did here. It said, okay, we're just going to ignore what the EPA says. We're going to make the decision about what the definitions are. I think it's it's really... It's a little confusing to read these opinions and the concurring opinions, but they really, in the end, make it very clear. The, the last paragraphs of both Kagan's opinion and Kavanaugh's opinion make it clear that what they're saying is they, they're reversing only because in the particular facts of this case, the Sackets could build their house, but that the Ninth Circuit opinion should have further proceedings to determine things, that it, it really is not up to the court to define what the EPA's jurisdiction is in this way. And so it's a very big danger for every agency. Um, the FTC, everything could be at, at stake here. And it's one of those things that we've pointed out. It, it's along with Morvey Harper and the um, independent state legislation. Those could just eliminate democracy. So we have to be careful here. It's a very important issue. Yeah, federal agencies are the only things really that prevents capitalism from eating us all. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's what we're allowed to happen is by throwing out all these regulations that are designed to protect the public good. You know, businesses and property owners, you know, get to do whatever they want, uh, but we lose some of those protections that were um, important for the public good. Um, Kim, last question uh, for you. Earlier this year, you wrote a really interesting piece in the Boston Globe um, about the impact this case could have on people of color. You wrote that the repercussions of the justice's ultimate ruling will be felt far beyond Chantel and Michael Sackett's property line. What, what did you mean there? 
Yeah, I mean, this, like many cases, when it comes to the environment and protections of the environment, uh, the negative impacts of climate are felt in marginal communities most. It hits them the hardest, and therefore any rolling back of the federal regulations meant to protect these wetlands or or other environmental factors are going to hit people of color the most. You know, I... I, um, came across this story after reading some of the amicus briefs in this case, and one was submitted on behalf of a Native American community in Minnesota that depends on a particular type of grain, not only for their diet and their um, own sustain sustainability, but also as a cultural um as a cultural element. It's in their rituals. It's been a part of their culture for generations. And it's the only place in the world where this stuff grows and it grows on these protected wetlands. And they've actually used these wetland rules to oppose a, uh, a, a, a plant, a, a, plant from being built that would have polluted that water and made it impossible to grow this grain. Right. So without these protections, that entire community could be wiped out. It also, think about the the farmlands on the wetlands down in places like Louisiana that have been polluted and have caused uh, black and brown people to have to migrate away from land that they've lived forever. Think about the fact, you know, there's this um, stereotype about black people and how we can't swim. I can swim, by the way. But it's not that <laughs> black people have any sort of inability to swim that is latent. What it is is... Culturally speaking, in the United States, Black people have far less access to clean water. They don't grow up swimming in waters. They don't, they're not near beaches. They're not near clean streams. They're not near places where the water is clean to swim. And so they have less of an opportunity to have that experience. And that's why they're less likely to swim. And so you have things like this that are eroding the protections of the waters that we have, of course, it's going to hit black and brown people and marginalized people more. It's just, um, you know, it's sort of built into the system. We talk about systemic racism or institutional racism. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about somebody saying, oh, I hate black people. We're talking about a system that impacts black and brown people hardest, no matter what happens. So I'll, I'll link my story in the show notes if you want to read a little more about it. Yeah, I think, you know, my experience with discriminatory impact comes from gender issues, being a woman. Um, But I think it's why we need diverse groups at the table just to raise issues. You know, well-meaning people often simply overlook the impact that decisions have on people who aren't like them. You know, they they, they mean well, but they just see the world uh, through their own eyes. And so it's yeah. useful to have people at the table to raise these other issues. Well, some of them mean well. There was a point in Alito's <laughs> okay. assist- Fair enough. Fair opinion enough. in this. It's just like all this evidence that they put in about the impact of this ruling, we're going to disregard that. That doesn't matter. So I don't, I don't think he means well. <laughs> Fair enough. Hey, we haven't talked about justice reform lately, and I want to talk about something that may be injustice reform, and that's more states are turning shoplifting misdemeanors into felonies, even though statistics show that harsher penalties have a disproportionate impact on people of color and do not reduce crime. 
We all remember the 90s and have seen that stricter laws did not help and had a disparate impact on people of color. Have we learned nothing since the 90s? Kim, what's going on? What is organized retail crime, which is what we're now calling um, what used to be just shoplifting? And is it a real problem that warrants enhanced punishment? Yeah, so this is really interesting. I um, uh, stumbled across this. I had read a piece um, in the Marshall Project a while ago. And then lately I've seen a little bit more about uh, the push to strengthen laws meant to attack shoplifting to, in a lot of um, instances in almost a dozen states, to make what was a misdemeanor into a felony when it comes to shoplifting. And these laws are being pushed by companies, uh, retailers and their lobbyists, companies like Walmart and Target and Home Depot, who say they are getting killed by shoplifting, that shoplifting has increased, that it's um, really forcing them to increase their prices or even close their stores. And that is really terrifying to local communities. Even in New York City, Mayor Adams has said he didn't want to see stores close uh, in New York City and that he is amenable to these sorts of laws. Well, turns out from the reporting in the Marshall Project and elsewhere that there really hasn't been an increase in shoplifting per se. That's point number one, um, which makes these laws look a little suspect. Also, we know from history that these sort of punitive laws don't actually work to deter crime. And thirdly, if we believe these retailers and say that it is this organized retail crime that's hitting them, which means an organized scheme to shoplift in a way that you can take significant quantities of product and sell them on the secondary market, then is increasing the penalty for the people who actually take the thing from the shelf as opposed to the ringleaders of this, uh, is that going to work anyway? Probably not. So it just sort of raised my concern that this could be like we saw with the drug wars of the 1990s, something that might be well-intentioned, but in the long run end up not working in terms of deterrence and also leading to over-criminalization, especially of people of color. Yeah, it's such a good point and something that really needs to be taken into account. But so Barb, Let's talk about some of the reforms that have been put in place to deal with these claims, which, as Kim has noted, aren't supported by statistics uh, in the sense, you know, we're going to have to acknowledge that the data shows that the loss from what is now called organized retail crime is very small and that employee theft is a bigger problem and that mismanagement of inventory is another big cause of the shrinkage. But some laws have been passed that are pretty stern. So let's talk about those. Yes. So uh, Louisiana has converted, uh, you know, shoplifting, retail theft um, from a misdemeanor to a seven-year felony if Mm. three or more people are involved in the theft. That's their definition of organized retail uh, crime. Uh, And there are 11 more states who are considering similar laws. And I think, you know, certainly retail theft is a, is a problem. It affects all of us uh, who are consumers. And if stores shut down, it affects communities. So I think it's a problem that can't be ignored. But it's really important that you have accurate data when you're trying to solve a problem. And I think there are a couple of things that, that concern me. Um, 
One is that although the sheer dollar value of the retail loss may have gone up, some of that reflects the increase in prices. So, you know, if last year it was, uh, you know, $10 million and this year it's $12 million, is it simply because we raised the price, you know, of, uh, of a handbag <laughs> from a hundred dollars to $120? So that could be driving some of these numbers. Um, and the other thing is this definition of uh, organized retail crime as three or more people. You know, if if Jill and Kim and I go into a store and, you know, one of us grabs something, the other puts it in her purse and the other serves as a lookout, is that part of organized retail crime? Um, you know, I, I think that what, um, what they really want to go after is, you know, enterprises, criminal enterprises, uh, racketeering groups. And there are some, uh, you know, that send out pawns uh, to go, you know, often young people, they'll pay them, you know, a hundred dollars to go into one of the big box stores and steal some things, um, knowing that the kid is taking on all the risk. Uh, but for a low income kid for a hundred dollars here or there, it might be well worth the risk. Uh, they're the ones who get caught and not the, you know, the, the, the people pulling the strings up at the top, you know, the bosses. So I would favor um, steeper penalties against the bosses, maybe not so much against the pawns. And I also think that increasing the penalty may not be the best way to solve this problem. Jill, I think you raised this, that most of the studies show it isn't so much the length of the punishment as the certainty of getting caught that has a real deterrent effect. And so maybe these stores are simply trying to outsource their own security problems, right? Uh, Have police, law enforcement, and prosecutors prosecute people with steep penalties when instead what they should be doing is hiring more security guards. I know just the other day I took my mother shopping to a large uh, grocery chain that also sells a lot of uh, retail merchandise. And when I left the store, the greeter asked to see my receipt. You know, that that has worked. That does, that does work. She was an elderly retiree sitting in a wheelchair, but she did the job, right? And so maybe <laughs> we just need more of that than uh, increased penalties for people who are shoplifting. Very good points. And I, to make this a really um, fulsome discussion, let's talk about some of the arguments that are being made on the other side. I mean, we've talked about that this impacts the wrong people. We're not getting to the people who are running this as a profit uh, operation, which is the organized people, not the people who are actually doing the stealing. But uh, there's been some arguments that mobs are a problem and that stores and police can't or don't or won't deal with it. So they need to make these laws to get to mob crimes. And in Chicago, we have had mobs uh, entering stores and creating mayhem and theft. Um, there also have been arguments that when you up the value of what constitutes a felony, so saying that it's a felony if it's $1,000 instead of $500, that that actually increases the crime because people think, oh, I can steal $950 worth of stuff instead of you know getting caught. It'll still be a misdemeanor. The other argument being made is that bail reform is leading to more crime because people are not in jail while they're pending trial and they're out there committing crimes, even though statistics show that very few people commit new crimes while they're out on bail. So let's look more at what are the ways to do it besides upping the punishment for shoplifters. And Georgia and Delaware tried doing that. In Texas, it they tried it, but it led to racial disparities. So can you guys talk about what you think 
would be better ways to deal with or why those ways didn't work? Well, be- let me let me back up a little bit before we get into uh, yeah. what what might be better solutions to that. A lot of what you're talking about, Jill, and what I what I suspect a lot of this is about, frankly, is over the past several years, um, and certainly since uh, 2020 um, and the racial so-called awakening in our country, um, that which turned out not to really be one. There was a push to put, and even before that, it was really part of the um, anti-over-incarceration push to to try to change laws to really get at the fact that we had um, over-incarceration in general, a lot of which had to do with very petty crimes like shoplifting that could really destroy someone's life, and particularly the disparity, the racial disparity in over-incarceration, that there was a push, a bipartisan push, might I say, for a long period of time to rectify some of those laws and to change laws to make them less punitive, um, to make them fit, to make the the punishment better fit the crime and to not create a basic uh, pipeline to prison for so many people, particularly in marginalized communities. And that resulted in changing a lot of laws to lower the sentencing, um, to make um, uh, parole and and other lesser uh, punishments more broad, to give some clemency to people who had committed these crimes in the past uh, so that they can get a a second chance at a real life. And there was opposition to that. And I think part of this is a uh, a push to try to reverse some of those things that were done to say, ah, we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have been, you know, soft on crime and let up on these criminals and we need to really crack down again. And they, you know, drum up either actual, you know, fear about actual events happening or some cockamamie stuff to say, oh, we have mobs roaming the street. You know, you can't go to Chicago anymore. Chicago's a terrible place um, in order to try to increase some of these crimes and scare people, frankly, into thinking that they are necessary because they would prefer to have over-incarceration and disproportionate impacts on people of color uh, in order to keep these policies in place. I think a lot of this is disingenuous. I don't know a lot about the retail lobby. I think they generally probably are mostly concerned about their bottom lines and saving money. And maybe they it's easier to push for laws like this than to deal with their own employees. I worked at drugstores and other retail places when I was in college. And let me tell you, all the theft was coming, well, 90% of the theft was coming from the people who worked there. I mean, it just was mm-hmm. that that's something that happens. They have the access to it um, and they create their own little rings. It wasn't the people coming in. And the people who were coming in who were caught shoplifting, uh, honestly, it was for stuff that they needed because they didn't have money. It was medication or diapers for their kids. It was actually really sad. And if I caught them, I would try to make sure that the cops weren't called because it was a societal problem. It wasn't, these people weren't dangerous. So I, I think that this is a push to reverse some of the progress that has been made on um, on criminal justice reform. And maybe I'm just cynical, but I, I want to hear Bob's, Barb's thoughts. Well, I, I just think I, I'd like to see more data before we start changing laws. Uh, I, I, I am sure that there is an issue with organized crime that is stealing from some of these big box stores, you know, um, you can buy large electronics, you can sell them on the street. If if this is a problem, let's deal with it. But I, as, as we said earlier, I don't know that the data reflects an increase in the number of items being stolen so much as the v- dollar value of the items being stolen. Um, and are we looking at low-level 
shoplifters or organized criminal activity. Uh, and there are other ways to go about organized criminal activity, you know, using investigators um, and, uh, you know, intelligence information to share information as opposed to just, you know, catching the low-hanging fruit when someone walks out the door with something stuffed in their pockets. Um, and then, um, you know, the other thing, I'd, I'd rather see more prevention than enforcement. And so you can have prevention by having stores engage in best practices, having somebody at the door to check the receipt on your way out, um, more uh, monitoring. You know, you can put those devices on items that ring when somebody tries to walk out the door with them. So I guess I'd rather see more investment there. Uh, but that requires the retailers to invest as opposed to the government to invest. And perhaps that's why they're trying to pass this expense on to the government and to society. It does seem like getting caught is the best deterrent and that harsher sentences are not going to have any outcome. And especially if they don't get to the ringleaders of the mobs that go in as opposed to the individual's um, and also being careful that we define the crime. If you're taking it, as Kim was saying, people frequently take what they need and can't afford. And that is a societal problem that needs to be dealt with, as opposed to people who are doing this for economic gain, for selling in the private market. That requires much bigger volume than taking one package of diapers. So we need as a society to deal with this and retailers need to deal with it, not the law enforcement. Well, now is the time for our favorite part of the show when we answer your questions. In fact, this was my favorite part of the live shows when we heard questions from the audience. And the questions were so good, so well-informed, as they always are in the questions that we receive from you every week. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week and we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. So today, our first question comes to us from Kathy, who asks, how can Trump qualify to be president if he has been proven to be not responsible with security documents? Jill, you want to take a stab at that one? Sure. And I'll even try not to be political in answering the question about whether he is or isn't qualified in a broader sense. Technically, to be elected president, you have to be 35, a natural-born citizen, and to get enough electoral votes to win the election. There are some things that might disqualify you, which would include a conviction for insurrection. But other than that, it doesn't matter. You can be a felon, and you still are qualified by the Constitution to be the president. So making sure that you vote and get out the vote is the only protection we have from someone who we think may have done things that are not the kind of person you want to be the president. Yeah, God save us from ourselves. Um, our next <laughs> question comes to us from at hi 2693410 who asks, does anyone know what will happen if or when Trump does not pay E. Jean Carroll? And what's his deadline? Kim, you want to 
answer that one? Um, that is an interesting question. So deadline, there's not necessarily a deadline yet because Donald Trump has the right to appeal this opinion. And generally that um, will delay the actual um, court judgment that requires uh, an award be paid. Usually that will be put off pending appeal. But once the appeals are exhausted, the judge, the trial judge in the case can impose uh, a deadline with uh, in which to pay this amount of money, the amount of the judgment. And if a defendant refuses to pay, then E. Jean Carroll can seek a court order to attach his property until he pays. Um, you they can attach property, they can attach earnings, wages, uh, all kinds of things to go after to actually make good on this money. It is not always easy. I think the most visible example of this is um, the Goldmans against uh, O.J. Simpson. Like, O.J. Simpson can't sign an autograph without that money going to the Goldmans because they attached everything until the full uh, amount of the civil judgment that they got uh, is paid. And that's exactly what she can do in this case. Yeah, gar- garnishment and attachment. We had a whole department at the U.S. Attorney's Office who did that to collect, um, you know, legal debts. So they they have ways of making people pay. Indeed. Our third question comes to us from at Gail Colleen H, who writes, "I'm having a back and forth with a friend on the concept of church and state." Since it's not specifically in the Constitution, she says it's in the writings of Jefferson and not really valid. Any response that can help me with this? Yes, Gail Colleen H., you are right. This is part of our First Amendment. There are two clauses in the First Amendment um, that relate to this. One is the free exercise of religion, and that's the one that allows us to exercise our religion the way we choose. But there's a second clause in the First Amendment that's referred to as the Establishment Clause. It should actually be called the Anti-Establishment Clause because it says that the government may establish no religion. There can't be a formal religion of the United States. And so that's the one that prevents the government from favoring one religion over the other, you know, saying we're a Christian country or posting the Ten Commandments are those kinds of things. So there can be no officially sanctioned religion in the country. So you, Gail Colleen H., are right. Thanks for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Winebanks, Kimberly Atkins Store, and me, Barb McQuaid. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. Please support this week's sponsors, Article, Kitsch, and Osea Malibu. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. Hey, you guys. So it was so much fun. Um, I thought during the live shows, we had a playlist that we played before the show. and We all contributed various songs to it. I know I asked for like Respect by Aretha Franklin. And I think one of the, sh- one of the songs, Kim, that you put in was Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves by the Eurythmics, uh, along with Aretha Franklin. That was great. But um, one of the things that surprised me is, you know, they played our little theme song and it went on much longer than I'm accustomed to. It's um, so long. It's so long, and it's it's actually quite beautiful. Did you know that that song has a name? No. What is it? Well, do you know, Kim? No. 
It's actually called Big World for a Minnow by Trevor Trevor Kowalski. I saw it on the playlist. So there's a little Sisters-in-Law trivia for you. Oh, my God. Here's another bit of trivia. I was in my hardware store, my local hardware store, Lemoy, and I'm all of a sudden hearing a song, which is what Stephanie Miller uses when I'm on her show, and it's you sort of want to dance to it. And I'm going, oh, my God. And it's a real song. I mean, they were playing my name. This is our, I've, I've got the words to it exactly. But imagine being in your hardware store and hearing your song played. It was really remarkable. Well, and speaking of music, I think we ought to uh, just say what a contribution to music we had from Tina Turner, rest her soul. What a, what a great contributor to the, to the world of music and sisterhood. And survivorship. She's the greatest of the, one of the greatest of the survivors mm-hmm. for a lot of issues that we talk about. Mm-hmm. 